Hello, and welcome to the Free American Voice podcast from Midwestern Citizen. Today's episode will be part two of two on our COVID series. We'll be discussing some of the legal measures being taken to counteract the spread of the virus. My name is Raj Asher. I'm a senior at the University of Michigan majoring in economics, and I'm also a senior editor at Midwestern Citizen. Hi, everyone. My name is George Stragus. I am a junior at The Ohio State University studying philosophy, politics, and economics, and I am a staff writer at the Midwestern Citizen. Hey, everybody. I'm Jason Siegelin. I'm a senior at the University of Michigan studying economics, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Midwestern Citizen. Hi, my name is Paulo Du. I'm a senior studying economics and constitutional democracy at the University of Missouri, and I'm an associate editor at the Midwestern Citizen. Awesome. So to start off, um, we've recently seen the Omicron variant in the news, and some of the kind of measures that we're seeing taken with it um, are the rise of kind of a third booster dose of the COVID vaccine being required um, at some universities. So um, at the University I-10, University of Michigan recently announced um, the requirement of this third dose of the vaccine, um, which, which also then asks the question, what does it mean to be fully vaccinated? And I think we're also kind of seeing a lot with employers requiring the vaccine and in terms of um, some statistics on uh, vaccine requirements. Um, a, a lot of people who are unvaccinated um, would consider leaving their job um, if their workplace required a vaccine. Um, a recent survey said 75% um, would consider it. And then, but then on the flip side, you also do see um, some people wanting that um, vaccine requirement in the workplace and actually would consider leaving um, if there was not a vaccine requirement. And so uh, that, that statistics from the same survey said 40% would, would consider leaving. So I think this presents kind of um, an interesting environment. Um, and, and Jason, do you want to talk a little bit more about what we are seeing with the legal landscape around these vaccine mandates? Absolutely. And just going back on your, your one of your previous remarks, I think that the disagreement um, between employees who want more protections against uh, against these different variants and the employees who want perhaps maybe less protections and are making liberty arguments, um, this dichotomy really is reflected in the courts and in jurisprudence. And really, a tr there's really two trends that I want to highlight. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I have looked through these cases and these decisions. There are really two trends that I do want to highlight, as mentioned. The first is the existence of religious exemptions in these vaccine mandates, um, particularly the, the a really, really recent case that was um, on the shadow docket was uh, We the Patriots USA versus uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York. And this was a case that involved a New York vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. There was no religious exemption for this vaccine mandate, but there was a medical exemption. And the plaintiff brought a claim against the court, again, not against the court, but against the governor um, based on these, this absence of religious exemption because all of the plaintiffs were practicing, I believe they're all practicing Christians. And so, and they were against the idea of the use of fetal, uh, aborted fetus uh, cells. So it's so aborted fetal cells in these cell lines that were being used to develop these vaccines. They were all opposed to that on the grounds of their religion, uh, but nonetheless, the, and they were all healthcare workers as well. I think most of them were nurses. 
and the state uh, did not have an exemption for them. So they were um, subsequently uh, at risk of losing their jobs. The, so this really goes in line. Um, it's actually surprising uh, considering the more conservative lean of the court. And um, it, it really, you know, this, this sort of religious exemption jurisprudence goes in line with a lot of the stuff that the Roberts Court has ruled on in recent years regarding COVID. There's been, uh, you know, specifically uh, Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo. Uh, that was a, a New York case, but I mean, that was at the Supreme Court level. Uh, and there's also a case called Tannen versus Newsom, um, both of which uh, the court sided in favor of the plaintiffs who were complaining against the uh, restrictions on their uh, the supposed restrictions on their religious freedom uh, brought about by vaccine mandates and also um, restrictions on the ability to attend church service. And this really goes in line with what's called the most favored nations uh, most favored nation analysis of certain religious issues um, that is popular in the Roberts Court. And I think just going back to the case at hand, We the Patriots USA versus Hochul, uh, Gorsuch's dissent uh, from the court's decision to effectively not hear this case uh, really highlights the desire for um, uh, uh, striking to strike down these these vaccine mandates based on the lack of religious exemptions. Particularly, Gorsuch highlights the fact that although there was a medical exemption, there was no religious exemption. So in this dissent, Gorsuch highlighted that um, there's there was intent behind this. Uh, religious, the absence of religious exemption, particularly the governor's statements uh, uh, regarding uh, these these religious dissenters, um, was sort of expressive of that intent. Um, but the main thing was that, citing Fulton versus Philadelphia, Gorsuch highlighted the fact that there was no comparable exemption for religious dissenters, but there was an exemption for medical uh, medical uh, people who could not take the vaccine um, on medical grounds. Um, so this is a trend that we've seen, as I mentioned, Tannen versus Newsom, uh, Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo, in other cases like that, um, where um, uh, we see that Gorsuch's descent is in line with those cases uh, in the most favored nations analysis as, as well. Um, another case that really uh, highlights another trend that I want to mention is the uh, Sixth Circuit's ruling in the OSHA vaccine mandate uh, for employers with 100 or more employees. Now, this is a, this is a case that relies heavily on the definitions of various terms uh, in the OSH Act, uh, particularly that uh, that authorized this use of uh, the police power. Um, particularly, one term is um, gr- the term grave danger. Um, and the litigants were really uh, arguing over what does this term mean? Um, and wh- and so specifically, the OSH Act says that in cases of a grave, grave danger, the OSHA may, t- may take certain regulatory actions. One of these regulatory actions may be a vaccine mandate for workers. And so the definition of grave danger is, is interpreted differently by the Sixth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit. Uh, particularly the, 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 the Fifth Circuit uh, interprets this term at way more leniently, saying that COVID is not necessarily a great danger, whereas the Sixth Circuit interprets it a lot more stringently, saying that COVID is definitely a, a grave danger presented to employees. Um, so there's definitely also a lot of subjectivity in this analysis. And so in, this, in these gray areas of the law that we're seeing, 
particularly in, the, in, in that in which court cases decide are decided upon definitions of specific terms. We're seeing a lot of um, uh, political preference uh, taking the place of a more uh, objective analysis of these issues. Um, as you know, as, as we know, the Fifth Circuit is a lot more conservative. Um, and so we see maybe a more politically influenced decision there, whereas the Sixth Circuit is a little bit less conservative and we see maybe perhaps a different, um, differently influenced decision there um, in, in, in determining how these judges de um, define the term uh, uh, grave danger. So these are some, these are some trends. Number one, as I mentioned, the, uh, the fact that religious exemptions uh, or the failure to add a religious exemption at, for a vaccine mandate is um, prompting litigation. And the second trend is uh, really the subjectivity that we're seeing, um, which is being now the analysis is being subject to, uh, uh, substituted with more political preferences. Yeah, there's a lot of ground to cover there, but I think talking about the idea of religious exemption, it's really important to see like how society views them. And this is something that UC Hastings law professor Doris Dort Rice is um, marked on. And it's the idea that religious exemptions are being used as a matter of political identity. And I believe one of the reasons this is viewed in this way is that besides for a medical exemption, there's no other exemption from the vaccine that's really been seen as main, mainstream. Um, it's obvious that vaccination has become a political topic in our country. I think, I mean, I've, I've been in arguments about vaccination with people. I've heard arguments between people, seen it all over social media about whether to get vaccinated or not, whether you should have to, whether it should be mandated. So oftentimes I think religious exemptions are going to be the only avenue in which people could express their political identity. And that really isn't the use of the religious exemption. It's very important that because you, it's very important to distinguish that because you believe something politically does not mean um, it's to be used for religion. Um, something to compare it to was during the draft in Vietnam and there was the conscientious objector status that was given to people. It was only given to people that could prove that they shared this belief that they were like against war for like their, their entire lives. And this is a standard that could very likely be implemented one day in regards to vaccine mandates. Like if you have every other vaccination in the book and then go in front of a court of law and try to claim that you're against vaccination, it's going to be really hard to prove when you've received other vaccines. And it's going to be really hard to show that this isn't trying to fill a political agenda because the distinction between political beliefs and religious beliefs, it, it comes down to like constitutionality, really like religious freedom is a first amendment constitutional right. And when political identity is being brought in and trying to be used through that Avenue, it, re it really threatens it for the American people. Interesting point you make. Um, yeah, you can even see it in the military. I mean, thousands of service members have sort of refused to get the COVID-19 vaccine, citing religious exemptions, and they aren't having a lot of success in the military. So it's sort of interesting to see that sort of dichotomy between civilian life and military life, whereas 
the connection between politics and sort of vaccine mandates is because has for sure become blurred, but how sort of military justice views that and how politics is sort of um, used to sort of justify religious exemptions. I think it's something that requires a lot more sort of exploration. And it would be nice to, you know, have the Supreme Court bring some clarity or bring some semblance of, you know, uniformity to religious exemptions and vaccine mandates so that there's a lot less sort of regional uh, discrepancies that are quite frankly, making a lot of people frustrated. Yeah, I think going off of that as well, just the striving for this uniformity in in jurisprudence regarding uh, mandates and regarding these sort of um, communal initiatives. Um, You know, this really, and I think maybe George or Paul mentioned this as well, but this this brings a lot of parallels to Vietnam and the sort of what George was talking about, conscientious objectors. And really, um, you know, there's, there's, there's really... Back then, too, um, there really didn't seem to be much consistency in judicial opinion uh, regarding what um, you know the extent to which uh, somebody could claim to be a conscientious objector, um, and in, even in, even when there was consensus regarding that, um, there really didn't seem to be uh, too much regard to the limits of uh, you know at which at which a conscientious objector could be um, uh, going his or her own way. Um, and um, disobeying the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of uh, the desire for the government to, to coerce them into service. So that's an interesting uh, concept there. And I, I just wanted to bring up a statistic as well. Um, there have been about, so in the case, We the Patriots USA uh, versus Hochul in, in the state of New York, um, I believe, um, looking through my notes here, there were uh, 1,400 uh, employees in Northwell Health, which is a hospital system in the state of New York, that uh, uh, were terminated for refusing to uh, take the va- to accept the vaccine. That's a lot of people, especially when you're considering a, a, a regional health system like Northwell. Uh, so, so it's a really interesting sort of uh, dynamic as well that links to the economic realm. In that, uh, in the discussion we were having last time which is really, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the economic prices we're willing to pay? What's the cost-benefit analysis we're doing here? And as I mentioned with the whole conscientious objector jurisprudence, there doesn't seem to be a clear uh, weighing mechanism through which we can weigh the costs and benefits here. So, uh, and I think we, the Patriots, the case uh, in New York really, uh, really brings that sort of uh, analysis to play. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I think that just generally with COVID-19, when you're looking at either vaccine mandates or the economic or political ramifications, I I think it really boils down to just ad hoc policy because the shock was so sudden, so unprecedented, and the United States didn't really have sort of a strong public health infrastructure to address this at the onset of the pandemic last year. I think that it really comes down to having consistency in policy, and it comes down to making sure that individual political rights aren't being sacrificed at the expense of economic or public health goals while ensuring that individuals are remaining safe and ensuring that we can bring an end to this pandemic as soon as possible. And I think that that ad hoc enforcement has become even more sort of dire, given that there's not a lot of clarity on the effects of new variants. There's not a lot of clarity on, you know, what sort of regions are most susceptible to um new new infections um most least vaccinated regions I, I should say and there's 
not real clarity on sort of the path forward with respect to ending the pandemic. It seems like every you know other week there's a new variant that is either more contagious or more deadly. And I think that the fact that we're in the pandemic and we didn't sort of have a strong sort of public health plan before the pandemic really just makes it even harder because we're having to learn by experience. And I think that that ad hoc enforcement is something that, you know, the, the, the higher courts, um, higher federal courts are, are going to have to deal with. And it's, it's concerning because I'm not sure that they have the expertise to actually, you know, make good decisions here. I mean, being a judge requires knowledge of the law, but it also requires knowledge of technology, it requires knowledge of public health, um, it requires knowledge of society and economics and factors that go far beyond sort of legal doctrines and legal dogma. So yeah, it'll, it'll be really fascinating to see how these vaccine mandates hold up in court and what the future of sort of public health enforcement looks like in the United States. I think something impeding the court's ability to make decisions and by courts, I mean plural courts, just to, you know, the circuit courts, district courts, and the Supreme Court, um, maybe impeding or facilitating is the precedent established in Jacobson versus Massachusetts, um, which upheld a vaccine mandate. And a lot of um, individuals, a lot of lawyers, a lot of judges are citing Jacobson um, as a way through which to uphold um, many vaccine mandates. Um, it's been cited uh, countless times and really any of these cases is at play. It was really the first case uh, heard of the Supreme Court level that dealt with a vaccine mandate. Um, and so it's kind of like, uh, it just kind of feels, it, I, it kind of feels to me that Jacobson is uh, um, sort of, at, at least for conservatives, it's, it's, an, it's impeding progress in sort of uh, making a, taking a more nuanced approach to vaccine mandates. And for, for more uh, liberal uh, judges, it is, um, it is more of a facilitator. Uh, but nonetheless, it calls into question uh, such an old precedent that, um, according to Gorsuch, uh, in, his dissent, in his concurrence with uh, Roman, Roman, uh, Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, uh, it, it failed to consider the claim in Jacobson was not a First Amendment claim. It was not a, the, you know, whoever, I, I forget his first name, but Jacobson was not was not challenging the vaccine mandate on First Amendment grounds. And so this kind of leaves room, kind of leaves some space for some plaintiffs, um, in Gorsuch's opinion, at least, in his concurrence in Cuomo. It leaves some, it leaves some room for uh, plaintiffs to bring claims on First Amendment grounds um, in that, um, according to some, Jacobson has been effectively overruled by, by Cuomo and um, some other cases as well. So it leaves in, in, in the First Amendment sort of sphere. And so it leaves, it leaves a lot of room for, for, for jurisprudence regarding the First Amendment and vaccine mandates, especially when we have um, the case that I mentioned earlier, um, the absence of religious exemptions. So there's definitely some, some, uh, some nuance that is slowly being injected into this interpretation of Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And um, like we've seen in really any precedent that's been struck down, whether it's Plessy versus Ferguson or, or any other case that, that used to hold precedent, but then was, was, was reversed, um, uh, we may see a reversal in the interpretation of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, depending on the conservative or liberal composition of these courts. Yeah, I think that Jacobson case and the precedent in general, when it comes to like mandates regarding public health is like murky to say the least. And I think a lot of that has to do with like 
technological advances we've made, especially in recent years. Like logically, if COVID was happening 100 or 200 years ago, I don't think vaccines would even be out yet. Just technologically speaking, we're in a way different spot in society. And I think it's, it really like embarks on your, like your opinion, Jason, that like new precedent needs to be set for this, especially given the fact that it doesn't address like first amendment issues. And like, as we said before, the idea that like now like the first amendment, religious freedoms being used to like show political identity and value political beliefs, something that this precedent obviously wasn't accounting for, uh, it looks like by the end of this pandemic, we'll have some new precedents set on like really where to draw the bright line of where where we can mandate things in order to um, value public health and like where like individual rights come into play. So that that bright line is really yet to be, be drawn, in my opinion. I think I think it's also important to note that like when these cases are decided, a lot I think has to do with like the current environment of the virus that's kind of progressing at the time. Um, cause I think what Jason mentioned, um, I think with the OSHA case was talking about like, um, the term grave danger and how, how that can mean different things. And I think with COVID, we've kind of seen it ebb and flow where at, at some points it might be a grave danger, um, just because in a certain region, hospitalizations and deaths are super high. Um, but then at sometimes maybe it's not. And I, I think also with the technological development too, um, that's going to add an interesting wrinkle to things because, I mean, right now there's development of treatments. Um, Merck has a pill, Pfizer has a pill. Um, and, and if these turn out to be successful, maybe, well, maybe vaccine mandates will go away or they'll, they might stay in place with um, a number of exemptions since, I mean, the alternative to not I mean, getting vaccinated isn't that bad since you can always just get get a potentially effective treatment. Which calls into question from a legal standpoint, are these vaccine mandates, if we have the option to take a pill that may treat the disease, but doesn't necessarily completely eradicate it from the, from the human body or whatever, are these regulations, is the OSHA regulation, for example, is that narrowly tailored enough? If we just have, if we have alternatives, if you can force employees to take the, the, the new pill, or you can force employees to perhaps social distance, um, are these regulations, are these strict vaccine mandates, especially for the healthcare workers, which many of which don't include a testing, a weekly testing option, are, so the, the court may, it may, the introduction of these pills or these different solutions to the virus as well as geographic disparities may call into question whether or not these regulations are actually narrowly tailored, um, at least in, in, especially in First Amendment cases where we see strict scrutiny employed. Um, that, that, that's definitely a question. Yeah, I, I also think it begs the question, if that were to be the world we're living in, where like pills and effective treatments are created, is mandating in general the best route to take? I know beginning in my home state, Ohio, incentives were what was the main avenue through which they were trying to get people vaccinated. There was an Ohio vaccine lottery where once a week they were picking a winner to get a million dollars. Just if you got vaccinated, you were automatically entered into the lottery. There are employers offering pay raises. Maybe it's more efficient for hospitals to say, 
increase the wages of their workers if they get vaccinated versus not then um trying to mandate it and really avoiding all the individual rights issues as a whole that's that's really interesting george because there's studies that have come out that show that those incentive programs for vaccines actually weren't all that effective um so if we're seeing a situation hypothetically where mandates are effective and providing incentives, whether that be cash, prizes, et cetera, for vaccines are also ineffective. It really comes into question. It really brings into question whether the government actually has effective mechanisms to bring an end to the pandemic through the proliferation of vaccines. And it, it, it's, it's something that's, I think, even transcends sort of legality it transcends what happens in the courts it's really based on sort of a coordination between effective technology actually getting treatments out to the public political will whether these sort of mandates will actually be even politically uh, um, viable given current divisions in congress with the further mandates um, especially once the guidance is sort of given by the courts and i think that really it just comes down to individuals. And just like you were saying with the religious argument, that sort of blending of um, religious belief and politics, I think that all those factors sort of create a very, very difficult situation. Um, there's, I, even with the pills um, that we've been talking about, I mean, I, I imagine there's going to be coordinate pushback against those just like there is with vaccines. Um, so it, it's, it's a really complicated situation. And if if incentives and, and mandates don't work, it's it's kind of hard to see how the government can sort of push for you know greater greater vaccine usage and more philosophically whether that should sort of be the main avenue for actually ending the COVID nineteen pandemic. If there's potentially another way to sort of um, uh, drive down uh, infection rates, I know Jason's talking about maybe having social distancing measures back in place, but then we get back to the question of whether whether a lockdown again is viable economically. So there's a lot of challenges challenges there, and I think that analyzing the legal argument is is super super fascinating just because of the lack of sort of regularity and uniformity in, in, in enforcement. And I, I think a lot of um, the reason that the U.S. kind of went to these mandates is a lot of it is trust in government. Um, I think countries we've seen, like looking globally, countries um, with high levels of trust in government, such as Sweden and, and Norway, they tend to have a higher vaccination rate without having to resort to vaccine mandates. And, and I think it's also possible that um, using incentive programs and, and maybe using mandates potentially reduces trust um, among the population. I mean, people generally don't be don't like being told what to do. And um, I think the government trying to do that potentially reduces the trust um, in the population, which could potentially also for just down the line um, hurt any other measures that they try to take. Yeah, that's a really good point, Raj. Like say the vaccine mandate is only like the mandate of the first two shots of like a Pfizer or a Moderna and the trust is really shot within the country and then it now all of a sudden it's booster time and this booster is like proven to be rather essential to slowing the spread of the virus and there's just a complete lack of government trust um people aren't going to go get it almost at a spike for the government maybe and it's going to be they're gonna have a really hard time implementing like people a, a mechanism in which people could receive that booster shot so it's important to look at the fight is like like something ongoing that like 
the actions of the government now are going to have consequences for future action that they could take to help stop the spread. Yeah, I can only think of a couple events last year that uh, decreased faith and confidence in the government. Um, it's it's a really, really heady time right now. And just like you were saying, George, I think that any action taken to sort of mandate or influence, you know, individuals' decisions to get a vaccine is going to cost, you know, future political will. And it's really going to require calculation of whether that's worth it or whether there's another alternative to make sure that the government has the sort of public support it needs to actually implement future, not just programs related to COVID-19, but programs related to future crises that we're undoubtedly going to face related to climate change, um, economic inequality, um, racial justice, a lot of the reckonings that we saw last year. I think last year was sort of a microcosm of a lot of the a lot of the problems that the United States and the globe are going to face in the coming coming years. So yeah, it'll it'll be really interesting to see um, how this how this pans out. And speaking of this sort of legitimacy, the or the lack thereof that the government has maybe in a lot of the eyes and a lot of um, Americans' point of view, um, is this sort of and, and this is and maybe not government, maybe not necessarily the executive branch or the legislative branch, but talking about judicial legitimacy. Um, and I want to talk about the six circuits again, the six circuits uh, reinstating of the OSHA uh, vaccine mandate for um, employers with 100 and up. 100 employees and up, um, particularly the the, the um, analysis that the Sixth Circuit employed relied upon the Commerce Clause. The OSH Act, which um, effectively authorized this mandate to occur, also relied upon the Commerce Clause. And specifically, the Sixth Circuit mentioned um, mentioned that the, 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 the illnesses arising out of work situations uh, impose a substantial burden upon uh, interstate commerce. And I quote that from their decision. Um, and so you wind up with a lot of these cases um, under the Commerce Clause that through which um, government uh, power over the last century uh, and today, as we see through these mandates, um, is expanded under this very, very contested, uh, very, very uh, malleable part of the Constitution just you know, read read through Rickard versus R- Rickard versus Filburn in the '40s. That was a case under the Commerce Clause. That was um, that was that was a real example of the extent to which the government may go in arguing its case under the Commerce Clause um, and supporting and justifying its expansion of its authority. And so, I, yeah, I just I, I wanted to open that to mention to it as well in, in terms of. How uh, legitimate is the judiciary going to be seen if it continues to use these Commerce Clause arguments? Um, it seems to me that the Sixth Circuit used it without necessarily acknowledging its contestability, which is um, somewhat concerning. At the same time, you can use it. It's part of the Constitution, which is somewhat uh, concerning from a legitimacy standpoint. That's a great point, Jason. I think I, I mentioned in my First Amendment and technology article talking about big tech platforms that it's really, really important to consider whether old legal doctrines can actually be adequately applied to new circumstances. And I think that COVID is a prime example of that. Can, rather, should we allow judicial authorities to sort of bend and mend the constitution to meet the current circumstances? Should we have something that's a lot more stable and sort of a law that's actually adequately promulgated so people know what the law is and how to sort of act within the confines of it rather than sort of this ad hoc process of X happens and everything changes. And then two weeks later, Y happens and then everything changes again. 
and from the partisan standpoint as well, from between the Fifth Circuit and the, and the Sixth Circuit, there's clearly would be a divergence in the interpretation of the Commerce Clause um, for, as I mentioned earlier, when you have these gray areas in the law, when you have uh, cases being decided upon the definition of what a grave danger is, the subjectivities really uh, leave a lot of space for partisanship, leave a lot of space for political biases. And uh, I can't help but think that the Commerce Clause is subject to that as well, as we've seen, as we've definitely seen in the past. So it's definitely, it's interesting how the Commerce Clause seems to have almost infected every realm of jurisprudence, including up to the past few days. Uh, so it's, it's definitely uh, plays a really important role. And so as we're seeing as a result of this, uh, these conflicting, perhaps partisan-fueled disputes regarding whether or not the, regarding the definition of various terms, regarding the Commerce Clause, regarding the efficacy of mandates, etc. Um, we're also seeing um, a lot of emergency requests um, regarding various vaccine policies in the workplace and for healthcare workers. Um, as mentioned before, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, contestability in this area. There's a lot of cases unfolding as we speak, but nonetheless, um, there's been a lot of requests for the Supreme Court to to uh, opine on these issues. And so, with a with with other issues like abortion, with gun rights, and now with mandates, we're seeing the Supreme Court play an increasingly um, at least potentially interventionist role in this case. Um, and, and we've also just been increasingly seeing the, the stalemate that this generates and the necessity for a final arbiter to play a role here. Um, without the Supreme Court, we, we would really be at an utter stalemate in which different states would have different policies, which is true, but that would be exacerbated without the role of the final arbiter. And so we see these sort of a lot of these requests are occurring. Um, I'm not going to cite any any of these specific ones, but there is a SCOTUS blog article um, that was published on December 18th that uh, that cites a lot of them um, on the emergency docket, and so it just play, it just calls calls into uh, the spotlight the role that the Supreme Court plays uh, and is increasingly playing in, in American public life, where we have a decreased emphasis on the state courts, a decreased emphasis on state statutes. We have an increased emphasis on the opinion of just a few justices at the top, which may call into question how democratic is our, uh, is our, as our, our governing institutions at this point, when we have all of these contentious issues being decided at, at the top level. At the top, at the highest, at, at, at the, in the by the final arbiter, as I mentioned earlier, and number one, I think it calls into question a potential impossibility of reconciling these two sides anymore. But I also think number two, it calls into question federalism. At, federalism at its core, what, how, how much of a sort of, how are how are powers divided? How, to what degree are powers divided between the federal government and the state governments when we have essentially? all of these state level initiatives being effectively brought up to the highest court in the nation. We're, I, think, I think with this trend, we're gonna see a, a, a much, more, uh, much more weight being placed at the federal level and a lot less, uh, a lot less determined at the state level. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a really uh, interesting point you make there, Jason. Um, and I, I think it's even beyond COVID, I think we're just kind of seeing like anytime there's a big ruling that's, that's controversial. It's just kind of assumed that the Supreme Court um, 
is later either going to overturn it or uh, uphold it. And so I think it brings less importance to these lower court rulings as they're always kind of viewed as um, a temporary thing that's going to happen for a few months and then the court's going to um, really decide on it later on. Yeah, I think I think honestly, um, it's it's also calls into question to, you know, what, what I what I would call like the judicialization of, of politics, really, when we see this rise in in public interest law firms that are explicitly conservative or explicitly liberal, it calls into question the degree to which politics and partisanship has infected the judicial system and has used the judicial system as merely an extension of a partisan effort. Um, and so I think that's an important thing to consider as well. Yeah, especially given the composition of the court right now with its conservative majority and the fact that conservatives control a majority of the state legislatures, it's really, really interesting to see just how much of sort of judicial policymaking, um, sort of public policy has been captured by the Supreme Court and has been captured by particular sort of private interests and public interest law firms. And like you were saying, like if we can't be confident that our democratic institutions are actually going to one, protect the rights of the people, but also two, protect the intentions of the people. Um, when the people vote at the ballot box, when the people, you know, sort of have strong opinions on a certain policy direction, whether that's going to be either upheld or subverted by the court, that level of uncertainty really tugs at the cords that sort of bring society together. And it weighs upon sort of the future direction of the country and the country's political stability. Um, I think it's it's a it's a really dangerous moment we're living in now, but it it sort of calls for a reset or a reinterpretation of sort of the role of government, the role of the courts, and their role in sort of preserving democracy. And whether it's going to take you know something more targeted or something a more concerted effort to sort of protect democratic institutions, but also to protect the rule of law. I think that's a great place to end our discussion today. Um, thanks to Jason, Paul, and George for participating in this conversation on COVID, covering both kind of the economic effects and um, some of the legal landscape that we're seeing. Uh, be sure to check midwesterncitizen.com for our recent December 15th release, as well as our um, early January release. And thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. 